And then the next thing you know was March of 2000, which was the dot-com crash, which literally wiped out 75% of our competitors in 90 days. On today's Demo Day segment, Brett Brewer recalls what life and technology was like during the dot-com gold rush and the dot-com crash. He also talks about the advantages of being just a younger person. And without further ado, let's get into Demo Day. So Brett, I always start with a really simple question and that really is formed around why VC? And I think you have a really unique background and you've been an operator for much of your life. You've spent you know, time on the field with really successful startups growing and building them. You've also now been at Crosscut for the last 15 years, investing and backing founders. And, and so I always try to get an understanding of what is it about venture capital and investing in startups that keeps your energy alive? And you know, why have you chosen to stick in this path for so long? It's a great question. I, I when when speaking about venture capital, I always say it's the, literally is the greatest job in the world, and I feel like everybody at Crosscut and frankly every venture fund that is blessed enough to have this job, which is essentially coming into an office, getting to meet and interact with super talented entrepreneurs, pick the ones that we want to lock arm in arm with back financially and then help help build hopefully a big business but obviously sometimes it doesn't work that's an amazing opportunity i mean there there from my perspective there is no better job in the world um than that and how i ended up here to your to your point was i was an operator right i started my first company out of ucla in roughly 1997 with my college roommate we started in e-commerce selling movies and music and games online competing with CD Now, competing with Amazon, and grinding it out through the original dot-com bubble. And we had a very hard time raising capital, as we, we maybe should have, but it was very difficult. It took 12, 15, 16, 18 months to raise $300,000 just to get things going. And there weren't the tools that existed today. There weren't the incubator accelerators. There weren't the venture funds. There weren't seed venture funds. So there's a lot of stuff in the ecosystem then that didn't exist. But through my 12 or 14 year operating career and raising money from Redpoint, raising money from Vantage Point, raising money from Technology Crossover Ventures, TPG, I never even pitched an LA based venture fund. And so in 2008, with my great, amazing neighbor and friend, Brian Garrett, and my friend, Rick Smith, who were both traditional, very successful venture capitalists, we came together and said, let's plant the flag here in Los Angeles and become the go-to seed fund. I had lived it as an operator and, and knew there was a huge gap in the market where there just wasn't a entrepreneur-friendly facing venture fund in this market. And so that's where it all started. 150 investments later, five funds. Here we are plugging away. I just came from the office. You know, it's, uh, it's an, again, it's an amazing job and I feel very fortunate to have had it for 15 plus years. Wow. Well, Brett, I can't wait to unpackage all of the different parts of that journey to, uh, get to where you are today. When you went to UCLA, was there a thought in your head, which is like, I'm going to get through school. I'm going to start my first business. Was it more like I'm just here to party and be in a frat? Like what was the mindset going in knowing that UCLA wasn't like this business powerhouse? 
did you have to find a small subgroup of friends that you guys were all business focused or did that kind of evolve as you went through UCLA? It evolved. So I got, I got very fortunate. There was plenty of the, the very normal college kid life and the party. And I was in a fraternity, Sigma Nu, um, which is right at the corner of Swarthmore and Gailey and Westwood. It's a great, <laughs> physically it's the best house. Um, and, and I think no I, bias, no, no bias, bias, no bias, but it, but it really is. And it was great for me. I lived in the house basically for, for the most part, three and a half years in that fraternity. I found like a lot of people at that age, I found my way and my way was again, plenty of social life and, and that, and that Avenue, but also three or four or five individuals that were also really interested in trading and researching options, really interested in the mechanics of business. And, and generally what was happening, of course, was this, the dot-com gold rush was just beginning. Yeah. Right? So this is 93, 94, 95. There's two computers maybe in a fraternity with 25 rooms that have AOL access, you know, kind of thing. Like it's very, I never had an email address my entire career at UCLA. I never had an email address. Things changed pretty close yeah. soon after December of 95 when I graduated, but I never had an email address. So it, it wasn't like we were, people were on computers and we were online. There were, again, a couple computers. I was never really a tech person per se. So I wasn't necessarily interested in the technology of the internet. Yeah. I was eventually interested in the scalability of it and the way it was going to hopefully transform business. But the technology side wasn't overly interesting to me. In today's world, you are hearing more and more with like Web3 and crypto. You're hearing a lot more of people being like, something big is coming. It's the new wave. It's like the the size of the internet, right? But it feels like a lot of the younger generation is talking about this big thing that's coming. Was that the internet in the 90s for you? Like, did it feel like people were like, oh my God, the whole world is going to be changing? Or... Did it, you kind of wake up one day and everyone was just using the internet? Like, what was that transition like? You know, it was probably in between those. It wasn't that obvious that it was going to be quite so transformational um, as, as the internet is. What was obvious to me, at least, and, and to my roommate, Brad, and to several others in our fraternity was if you were an entrepreneur, if you were going to graduate from college and try to start a business, there was really only one category to attempt that, okay. right? It was new. It was transformational. There was capital going into it. Um, it was sexy. It was the internet, right? So it wasn't clear, again, that, that it would be turned into what it did necessarily, but it certainly was relatively obvious that it could be big and transformational. What made it even more obvious for me, I graduated in December of 95, which was four and a half years. A great friend of mine graduated from Berkeley at the same time, my friend from kindergarten, and we decided to travel around the world. Yes. So that took quite a long time. We went through 25 or 30 countries. By the time I got back to L.A., even in that amount of time, nine or 10 months, it was a noticeable difference just how many people had email addresses, how many people were talking about buying something online, buying airline tickets, even the first of their kind, there was a couple of like dating sites and stuff. So 
that's where it became very obvious that this was the category to attempt to start a business. Now, before jumping into, you know, you and your roommate actually starting this business, uh, I did want to ask you about your travel because I think that, you know, right now there's so many people that feel like right when they get out of school, you know, they're seniors at college and they're about to get out. And so many of them feel like I have to immediately jump right into my career and get a job. And like, if I don't do that, I'm going to be, I'm going to lose out. Uh, And then there's another part of the kind of ethos or culture, which is around like, go and see the world and travel and experience new cultures that maybe you haven't been able to. What is your philosophy on it now? Like what, you know, if you're speaking to the younger generation, what were the benefits that you got out of traveling that maybe aren't just going to see a new place, but what what was some of the pros that came out of that experience? Sure. So uh, number one, I believe in the gut instinct of the individual, right? There are certain people that are just made to graduate from college, get a job at Goldman Sachs, and that works well for them. Yeah. Right. So I wouldn't try to talk that person into going on a trip around the world. Okay. There's other people, as you know, that just go travel and they never come back, right? But, <laughs> they didn't need the help. <laughs> but anyone that's asking me for their opinion and they're on the fence, I would always default to going on a trip and and changing your perspective. And, and the reason is, I've certainly learned by this point, it becomes nothing but more difficult to do that later in mm-hmm. life. So mm-hmm. in your in your low 20s, I believe in a very simple theory. One is definitely go do that and see the world. It's transformational. As we know, nothing, nothing changes your perspective faster than putting yourself in Thailand, putting yourself in Cambodia, mm-hmm. putting yourself in Nepal, putting yourself in X, Y, and Z, right? Number two, and the, what ties into the entrepreneur side, I have a lot of people asking me, I want to start a company, but I feel like I need to get my law degree first. I want to start a company, but I feel like I should work at Goldman for a couple of years. I feel like I should work at Bain. The, again, depends on the individual and, and knock yourself out. And, and certainly there's nothing wrong with experience. But generally speaking, it is much better from my perspective to attempt and fail as a younger person then get five, six, seven years into your career, you're now working at Google. Mm-hmm. You've got that Google salary. You're used to it. You've got a certain apartment or condo. You've got your BMW. And you think, wait, just, I don't want to start a company now. Like, You mean I have no salary for 12 months while I raise the money? And then I have this small salary even if I raise the seed round? Yeah. And, and all that stress, like, I'll wait. And the next thing you know, you've 10 been, years you, go by. 10 or- years go by. Right. So- I'm a big fan of the advantage of youth and, and and frankly, of the simple concept of if you start, it sounds kind of funny, but if you attempt something when you're already kind of on the bottom, you, you don't have anywhere to go. That's <laughs> how I always looked at it. I lived in, in in five guys from the college fraternity moved down to Manhattan Beach. I converted part of the kitchen with plywood and made it my bedroom. So I paid the least amount of rent, $265 a month. And that's where I lived for really three years in that house and another very similar setup, which was actually a closet in the next house. But the point being, I was already in the, I was the low man on the totem pole. I was in the the living literally in an actual closet. If the business didn't work, the business didn't work. I would start another one, right? I, I just think there is, that's when you look at most, you know, great entrepreneurs, it just, that's how it has to happen. 
It's not after a 10-year run at Bain or a 15-year run at Goldman that you magically wake up one day and say, I want to change the world. And now when you came back from your trip, what was the state of technology in California or in the, yeah, let's, let's use California because you've been traveling, you've been seeing the world, you know, having the best time with one of your best friends. And then you come back and you're like, okay, it's time to get to work. It's time to do something. What was those first couple of months like? And I know you said it took you a long time to get funding. What was like the state of technology or the state of like what you wanted to get accomplished back then? To show the state of technology, and I do find this fascinating, when I would be in Cambodia or we'd be in Nepal or some of these different places and kind of communicating with the friends that were back at school at the fraternity. Yeah. That was all done via um, faxing. <laughs> so I would literally write a letter and I'd say the little update to this person and that person. I'd say, you know, I saw um, this or that and, and try to make it personal. And then it would actually send a fax and the fax would go to Kinko's in Westwood. And once every three weeks or something, some, a fraternity member would drive down there, grab it, and then distribute it around wow. the fraternity. Like that is literally how we were communicating. And email again, it existed, but obviously not. Yeah, not where UCLA college students and one recent grad would would use it. So it was that's was the state of the union. Like this was very considered cutting edge. Just purchasing something online and. To show you, once we got a little traction and we launched the company, the original name of the business was eUniverse. Yeah. I spent most, forget about the fundraising side of the equation, I spent most of the first two years traveling across the country talking about e-commerce and talking about why e-commerce was safe. And I would be in these rooms with 50 people to 150 people that were, you know, half of them were there for the free lunch. But they would ask questions. They would say, I, I, I don't feel comfortable putting my credit card yeah. in there. And I'd say, okay, I understand that. But you, you do give your credit card at the pizza parlor to the 16-year-old. You give your, pizza, your credit card at the gas station to the 18-year-old. This is really the exact same thing, but better because it's all done through a computer and it can at least be tracked if something's happened to your card. You're literally just giving your card number in these other places. But that was a lot of it was around education and Amazon did a fantastic job, obviously, because they're Amazon, but they were they were getting their message across. But but I spent a lot of time just on on how e-commerce works, the actual basics of buying things online. And I would imagine not to jump too far ahead. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that that's part of like what your magic, you know, your own magic is, is your ability to empathize with founders you meet. Cause like you've been through the trenches of trying to, you know, uh, establish new technology. And so as you're meeting new founders, you can almost put yourself in their shoes of like, okay, am I the, am I like the old person now that's saying that's never going to work? Or are you able to like really like understand the new technology they're presenting to you? Yes. And the other side that is very easy to empathize with is the fundraising side. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we never had an easy path. Even once we went public, we went public April of 1999. We raised very little capital, but we did get public. And that was the, the main the main purpose. We then did a series of acquisitions. And then the next thing you know was March of 2000, which was the dot com crash, which literally wiped out 
75% of our competitors in 90 days. Wow. And that's the thing today in 2022 that's kind of hard for people to get their arms around. But it wasn't like the global financial crisis. It wasn't like this period we're going through at the moment where it was a pullback across the board or you know, just made fundraising more difficult. It was a full-scale stop. There is no more capital that is going to go into this category. Combine that with businesses that, in lots of cases, had no revenue and no revenue model. Their entire business was, well, if we can raise $50 million at a $200 million valuation, next thing you know, if we can raise $100 million at a billion-dollar valuation, that is our business. <laughs> You know, and then the music stops and they have 380 employees. They're throwing huge parties and events and they don't really have any revenue. They are literally gone in 45 days. They're gone in 90 days. And unlike the, the kind of recession pullbacks that have happened since the dot-com crash, the, the dot-com crash lasted a long time. I mean, it was years with an S. It was 2001, 2002, 2003, where... These big conferences that previously were, were like Web3 conferences today, uh -huh. high energy and lots of stuff happening. Those same conferences were depressing. They were people walking around with a business card saying, if you know anybody that's hiring, please let me know. I mean, no money was coming into the category. Fortunately, eUniverse, and it's a good lesson for, for the entrepreneurs that are listening in, because we never had access to... 50 million, $100 million rounds, we always had to be focused on revenue. Mm. We always had to be focused on building an actual business. In our case, it was selling movies and music and games online, which I will admit is an extremely difficult business, but it is a business. You, you are bringing in revenue. And so when the dot-com crash happened to us, we said, well, this is clearly a huge change and this is not as good as it was. But it's not that much different. Mm -hmm. We're still selling things to these consumers. We're still figuring out marketing. We're still figuring out how to get them to come back multiple times and buy more things. It, it's not that much different where, again, lots of these high-profile competitors were just gone. If you and a friend today wanted to start a business like Intermix, you could get a website up and running, you know, Squarespace or this or that. It had to have been so much different. So, so bring us back to like you're settled from your trip, you're traveling. What was the origin story? Were you like, what was your friend's name? Was it Brad? Brad. Like Brad, like you and me, buddy. Like we, like what was the problem that you saw? And then what were your kind of first steps, knowing that you couldn't just log into WordPress and launch a site? Like, how do you actually get a business like that running in the late '90s? Great question. Everything was significantly more difficult than it was today. Cross yeah, you're like, mar you're, you're yes, talking about marketing yes. and it's like, well, there's no Facebook or exactly. Instagram. Yes. So like everything is Yeah, like now that. there were, this is, this is 1997, 1998. So AOL is on fire. There are internet businesses that are working. Amazon is working. So there were business models that we could follow. But truthfully, if you just look at technology wise, we were, we were, everything was difficult and we weren't even cutting edge, by the way. We were just literally trying to block and tackle. The way we got our foothold in e-commerce was, was once we got public, we, which was mostly through the gaming space, we bought a business called CD Universe, which was based in Wallingford, Connecticut. CD Universe was like 
an e-commerce business that you would think it was 1950. Honestly, it was everything <laughs> was old. It was the, the actual office was in the warehouse in Wallingford, Connecticut, and it was a pick packing shipping warehouse where we would buy the CDs and everything, have it shipped there, pick the individual order and send it off. We skipped some steps by doing that acquisition because we got a little bit of a team there with with in e-commerce. And then our big sort of aha moment was figuring out different affiliates and different marketing channels where we could press on the gas and grow revenue. The revenue growth allowed us to attract a little more capital and truthfully kind of allowed us to survive through the through the dot com crash. Wow. But we renamed, you, you can you know stop me at any point, but in, in around 2003, we changed the name from E-Universe to Intermix. And again, kind of to your question around technology, we start MySpace in, in August of 2003. There's no cloud. There's no infrastructure to outsource your um, storage and users and everything. You got you to gotta buy actual servers. So we are buying servers. MySpace is absolutely growing like a weed from week three, four, five, six, and seven. We are buying new servers and stacking them. We were at 6060 Center Drive there on um, Howard Hughes development at, at Sepulveda and the 405 at the time. And it was a it was literally a ground game. It was buying more and more servers with an extremely cash-strapped company. If you if you fast forward to like a year into MySpace, when it's a relatively obvious for us internally to see this is a really this is going to be a really big success, right? We have a chance to be a leader in a hot category, social networking. Um, it's it's growing virally like nothing we've ever seen. We've been in because we've been around at that point for five or six years and seen a bunch of other different businesses. We've never seen anything quite like this, but we have board members in board meetings saying, we got to turn that site off. We have to unplug it because it's costing this company too much money. You know, and in big round numbers, maybe it's costing us $500,000 a month to run the servers and we're making $200,000 a month. Uh Uh-huh. You know, yeah, just bleeding. Bleeding money, of course, but everyone was growing so fast. Yes, and everyone on the operational side is jumping out of our seats saying what yeah this is our golden goose like this is literally the greatest thing that we've ever been part of the last thing we're going to do is unplug the site thank you for tuning in to this segment of demo day in the next one brett shares the amazing story of how myspace rose so quickly in popularity in the first couple of weeks of its launch see you there